What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast presented by 444.com. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. Sammy Reed is on the show today to help me break down Week 13, work the Week 14 waiver wire, and look ahead to the fantasy football playoffs. Before we get to him, I need to let you know that the music on today's show is Hellbent by Superdrag from their 2014 compilation of demos called Jokers with Tracers. To hear the song in full, plus all the other songs I use on my episodes, click the link in the show notes to the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify. Today's show is sponsored by FantasyDraft.com, the one and only rake-free DFS site in the business. What does rake-free mean? It means that 100% of your entry fees at Fantasy Draft are paid out to the contest winners. If you want to try them on a seven-day trial, go to FantasyDraft.com, sign up with the promo code 444, that's the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4, and say goodbye to the rake. Now let's say hello to Sammy Reed. You know him from Roto Grinders, where he writes the Reed option every week and co-hosts the Gilcast. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at Sammy Reed FI. Sammy, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Thanks, brother. It's good to uh, be on with you. I'm excited that we get to wrap on some football. Uh, me and you have been jockeying back and forth in the barf league, and uh, and and we kind of rule. So I'm excited to get into that a little bit. Oh man, my barf team is imploding in a major way. Like you and I both had the the misfortune of drafting quarterbacks that did not end up as the primary starters for their teams. That is correct. Uh, you you took Newton, I took Andrew Luck, and we've been you know hanging in there, all things considered. But I also had Stafford, and yeah, just in general, that quarterback crew is is falling apart uh, before my eyes. I started Nick Foles in that league this week, and somebody else had already snaked Minshew as the, my handcuff, so I, I'm not even going to be able to go get him. So uh, anyway, nobody cares about my fantasy teams. Let's talk about Week 13. And actually, before we get there, this is essentially the end of the regular season for most people who play fantasy football, and I want to get some regular season takeaways from you. When you look back at the 2019 season and you look at the teams that you had the most success with, what are the commonalities between those rosters? Uh, does it date back to the draft? Does it have to do with the types of pickups you made? Like, what do you see when you look at those teams that uh, had, a, had a good year in 2019? You know, I, I think it's a lot of, and, and this is going to be kind of the same for a lot of people, it's having Lamar Jackson. It's on my list. Yeah, right? I mean, you and I play in a lot of two quarterback and super flex formats, uh, including Barf and the Scott Fishbowl, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, getting Lamar Jackson in whatever round it was, like the sixth, seventh round, uh, I think he was going, been a, that's been a huge key. I think being lucky enough in a couple of leagues where I had the number two pick and getting Christian McCaffrey there, obviously just kind of running hot that he hasn't got hurt and he's been great while Saquon has been hurt and not that great. And then guys late, like uh, I got a lot of Austin Eckler late. Nice. And yeah, and he's been a guy that obviously he was one of the top running backs before Melvin Gordon went out. And even so, he's kind of retained RB2 strength. And so to get a guy like that, who overall has been like a top five running back, top seven, something like that, um, you know, and whatever, like the seventh round where you got him, I think has just been a huge thing. So those are the guys that I'm kind of like most exposed to. And I guess the other guy would be uh, Mike Evans was a big target of mine at the end of the second. I got him at the end of the second in a lot of leagues. And he's been up and down, obviously, but for the most part, he's been really good. Yeah, if you look at that end of the second round, if you ended up with either Mike Evans or Dalvin Cook, I think your team probably ended up doing really well. And Dalvin Cook started to creep up ADP as the offseason wore on. So maybe he wasn't always going at the end of that round by the time you know the bulk of fantasy drafts were taking place. But McCaffrey is another one that really stands out to me as... That type of player who, if you had him, you were just set, basically. Because to nail that one running back pick really makes a huge difference, especially if that guy stays healthy for the whole season. That's been the the big problem with a lot of the other running backs who were going up at the top of draft boards. 
But yeah, Connor and 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 uh, you know who who else? Uh, Saquon's been hurt and David Johnson's been hurt. Like those were all landmines. Kamara too, a little bit. He's missed some time. So yeah. there were those missed games kind of across the board for all those guys. McCaffrey was the one guy who didn't do that. Now, if we wanted to go back and try to reconstruct this, what do you think could have led us to maybe take McCaffrey first overall instead of second or third, third overall? Like, what do you think the overall fantasy hive mind missed there? Do you think that there's something that we could have pointed to with McCaffrey and said, oh, this is the reason he should have gone number one overall? Not really. Not really. I thought... Saquon at the at the very beginning was just as good of a pick. I think the one thing is that you know you thought that McCaffrey was going to have probably be on a better offense than Saquon, which is which would be the case for him. But as it turns out, uh, Cam Newton is dust and Kyle Allen is <laughs> actually bad, and so you know the the bad team hasn't really hurt McCaffrey that much. I think the one place that people did make mistakes is as the off season went on. I saw a lot of Camara going ahead of mm-hmm. CMC. And I you know that was a a mistake just because I think it's a volume game. And when Kamara is a guy who dude, he's been so efficient and so good, like he's a great player and certainly worthy of a high pick, but the reality is is when you have a guy who splits time and seeds some goal line stuff to uh, you know, luminaries such as Latavius Murray and Taysom Hill, it, at some point Christian McCaffrey's the guy who never comes off the field. He plays like 95% of the snaps and just gets every running back touch to fade that volume for a guy who you're really counting on a high degree of efficiency on with Kamara. I just think that was probably a bad decision. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's really what it is. It's that the volume from McCaffrey was more guaranteed than it was for a lot of those, those other guys, including David Johnson and including maybe even Barkley a little bit because, again, he was presumably in a better offense than Barkley. And so they're going to be more sustained drives. But there was really just nobody behind McCaffrey to challenge him for that workload. Uh, I right. think that's the one thing you could have pointed to. But like you said, it's if Barkley doesn't get hurt, maybe we're not even having this conversation. Maybe he's right there neck and neck with McCaffrey. We don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how that top of ADP shakes out next year because McCaffrey will almost certainly be the consensus 101. The question is, or the question will become, is that still correct? Is that the guy that we should be taking in that spot? And if you ask me right now, I'd say, yeah, probably. Knowing what we know now, it seems like he's going to be that guy again. But you never know what's going to happen in the offseason. Now, I want to get back to Lamar Jackson real quickly because this is something, unlike McCaffrey, where basically everybody from you know pick one to pick 14 had their chance to get Lamar Jackson if they wanted to. They could have paid up a little bit more than everybody else, taking him a round or two earlier. That's not the case with a player like McCaffrey or even Mike Evans necessarily. So with that in mind... Who do we think is going to be that quarterback next year? Like, who is the proxy for Lamar Jackson in 2020? Because Jackson's going to be a first or second rounder. We're not going to be able to get him at that discount. Who do you think it might be in 2020? I mean, that's such a tough question because the reality is that he's such a unicorn. You know what I mean? Like, we haven't seen – this is like Michael Vick on steroids. You know what I mean? And we have not seen this sort of thing. So if you're asking, like, who's a quarterback that will – creep down a little bit that that could be really good. I think Kyler Murray really stands out as a player who has a ton of upside, who also has that rushing ceiling. Like we've seen Kyler Murray, he's had a really good rushing year. I think he's, let's see, second uh, among all quarterbacks in rushing yards, but it's still half of what Lamar Jackson has. And so another year in the Kingsbury offense, 
uh, putting some good weapons around him and really maybe unlocking his rushing ceiling a little bit, I think that could be the guy that takes a big step up. Yeah, he's the top of my list as well. And I, I'm not saying he's going to be Lamar Jackson where he ascends from being, you know, that sixth round pick in a super flex league to a first round pick or even like a 10th rounder and one quarterback up to like fourth or fifth round. But he does seem to have that biggest upside there to to jump up our consideration from when we're drafting to where he finishes at the end of next year now we're speculating a lot here we're trying to forecast way too far ahead like i said the offseason is offseason is going to change a lot of this but there's almost always one or two quarterbacks who make that jump from the lower or middle tiers of adp up to being a top five guy like last year it was mahomes right this year it's lamar Mm -hmm. jackson so trying to sniff out who that player is or who that player could be in the upcoming season is something that I do think is important. We need to try to figure that out because we know we don't want to be paying up for quarterbacks in the early rounds. It's just not a good use of draft capital. And so with that in mind, I'd rather go after Kyler Murray and and hope that he hits than pay up for Lamar Jackson next season. But I don't know. What do you think? Are you going to be willing to spend up for Lamar next year? Because it does seem like he's going to be worth a lot. It's just, is he worth a first or second round pick? Yeah, I don't think so. I I think that playing the game, uh, where you're trying to find the next guy instead of the guy who just did it is kind of the jam. Uh, there's always going to be some natural regression. Like Mahomes is no worse this year than he was last year. He's just not putting up this historical fantasy season because he had like an 8% plus touchdown rate, which is just ungodly and, and frankly can't be sustained long term. I'm a little skeptical that, that Lamar Jackson will be able to run for a thousand yards every season, but I do think that he's probably a little more sustainable because of that. Like his skills are are fantastic. So I think he's more sustainable because I I believe that the rushing can hang a little more, but you know, the reality is like, you know, we saw it years before with Aaron Rodgers and Deshaun Watson. It feels like that guy who you take as the number one QB never ends up actually being the number one QB. And and in that sense, I think it's just better to kind of get your value later and, and hit on the next guy. And, I, you know, I've played in several two QB and super flex leagues with you, and it kind of seems like that's your general strategy as well, and you're really good at it. Yeah, I do like to wait. I try to find value, and that's not always straightforward. It's it's more of a nebulous answer to give, but I think Lamar Jackson was a clear value this season because of that rushing production that he was going to give you. If you have to pay a top two round pick for that, I don't think it's necessarily the juice isn't worth the squeeze because there's that opportunity cost associated with passing on running backs passing on wide receivers I just think getting those elite running backs and elite wide receivers is just a little more important in the early rounds because let's be real every quarterback has a floor like for all the shade that you threw at Kyle Allen earlier in the episode here he's been very serviceable coming out of nowhere right this was a backup to Cam Newton and he's put up plenty of good to great fantasy weeks. Oh, right. Ryan Tannehill, Ryan Fitzpatrick. I mean, these guys are, you know, when you're Andrew Luck or Cam Newton dusts out, these are the guys that make or break your fantasy season. And, and, and the reality is, is when you look at like point distribution, uh, the quarterback point distribution is generally narrower than it is for other positions. It's not that hard to get between 16 and 24 points. Right, because they touch the ball so much every game, just inherently. They can't avoid it. They take every snap for the most part. And that just means that they're going to have more opportunities to score fantasy points, and that gives every quarterback a floor. Uh, You don't get that with every running back and every wide receiver. Um, So let's move on. Let's talk about uh, tight ends, because this is something that was pretty common in the best teams that I had this season, was 
not really paying up at tight end. And I think Darren Waller is the poster boy for this, but I could point to Mark Andrews or Austin Hooper, Dallas Goddard, even guys like Jason Witten and Jack Doyle. It was really easy to find usable tight ends in the later rounds. And honestly, I think this kind of like we just talked about with the quarterback position, this is what you should be doing at tight end. You need to be trying to sniff out the next year's breakout or the coming year's breakout rather than paying up for Kelsey or Ertz or whoever else. I just think it's kind of cowardly to pay up for tight end. It just seems like when you're doing that, you're afraid that you're not going to be able to find the breakout value at tight end in the later rounds. But I think that that's actually pretty doable if you look at those projected target volumes. Like I ended up with a lot of Hooper and a lot of Waller this year and a little bit of Mark Andrews because you look at the other receivers on those teams and you're like, well, where are the targets going to go? We have to try to assume that the teams are going to have to spread it out to some extent. And with that in mind, if you don't see those targets going to Austin Hooper and going to Darren Waller, I, I don't know what you're missing. Like, I think that you, it's not too hard to sniff those guys out. Do you? No. And, and I think that, you know, uh, JJ Zacharyson, who's super sharp talks about this a lot, The tight ends a onesie position. You're playing in a 12 team league. That means there's 12 starters and you know, you're just going to be able to find talent. And if you don't, you're not like that job. It's not like receiver where you have to start three every week. So you need to like, find at least one or two really good guys and then be able to like rotate a third guy. You just need to find one. And that's the important thing. And, and you know, you talked about not spending a high pick. I mean, where I feel like I kind of jobbed myself this year and I knew better and I still did it because I'm an idiot. Tier two guys. That, yeah. I, I mean, it, well, no, I, I paid in the middle tier. That's what, that's ultimately what I meant. Yeah. The OJ Howard, Hunter Henry tier, like that group of guys. Oh, don't please don't say OJ Howard's name out loud. <laughs> like that just like causes me to like cringe so hard. It's just so stupid, you know, but you're exactly right. That whole tier that OJ Howard, that Vance McDonald, Evan Ingram and Hunter Henry have both been good uh, when they've been in, yeah. but they both missed multiple games. Uh, you've had to find uh, substitutions for those guys. Meanwhile, when you were sharp and you waited for Darren Waller, Andrews, Hooper, etc. Dude, you're almost taking the same chance. Uh, you're just like paying a way lower pick for it. And uh, that middle tier, I think, both in terms of quarterbacks and tight ends, it's just missing value. Like that middle tier of quarterbacks was like a lot of guys like um, who like Baker Mayfield and Carson Wentz and Jared Goff. And it's like, oh, you could have just waited for Dak and Allen and Kirk Cousins and you'd be fine. But you're basically buying the top of a tier instead of waiting at the bottom of the tier. And uh generally it's best to like wait for the bottom of it here. Right. And I think that that's especially important at tight end because the position is inherently a little bit more injury prone. Like you mentioned Hunter Henry, you mentioned Evan Ingram. Those guys have been good when they've been on the field. The problem is, is that tight end is a riskier position in general. And if these guys are more likely to get hurt, if you're paying up any small amount more for those guys, when you could be drafting Waller, Hooper, Andrews, or someone else, then you're taking more risk of you know losing out on that draft capital you spent, right? And and the other and the other thing about them is they're so tight uh, touchdown dependent, right? Because tight end target shares and yardage totals are just going to be lower than wide receivers by the nature of how they're used. Touchdowns tend to matter a whole lot more for tight ends. Did you have the 700 yard guy who scored eight touchdowns, or did you have the 700 yard guy who scored three touchdowns? That's going to end up making a big difference. And a lot of that is up to random luck. So why spend extra draft capital to try to get on the good side of it? So we've talked about the teams that 
did well for us. What about the teams that didn't do so well? What is the biggest lesson you learned from your worst teams this season, Sammy? Yeah, so one of them, obviously, uh, you know, is that buying the middle of the tight end and QBs. Uh, but I'd say the other part is buying too much hype on the on the running back handcuffs who could be really mm. good this year. I'm talking about Darwin Thompson, Justice Hill, Tony Pollard, Daryl Henderson, Damian Harris. Like, dude, those guys have combined for like eight touches the entire season. It's been a complete just clown show. And, uh, you know, by the end of the offseason, I mean, these some of these guys were like, top 10 round picks imagine having darwin thompson or justice hill is like one of the top 10 players you drafted i don't have to imagine it because i did it and it was so bad <laughs> it's just so bad because you're depending on an injury basically darwin thompson was never going to unseat everybody in that backfield um justice hill was never going to do it daryl henderson i mean you're really hoping that you know todd Gurley ends up playing significantly less snaps and he doesn't unseat Malcolm Brown, and they use the running backs in the same way in the passing game. It's just so many things to bank on to take a high pick, and these guys get all this pub in, in the offseason, and the reality is is that they don't work out that well, whereas like running backs that you pick up in season have worked out a whole lot better. I basically have the exact same thing written down for my answer here, and I'm going to modify your answer a little bit. I'm going to say don't get too cute with too many late round picks like that. Yeah. It's okay to take some of these big upside swings. You have to do it if you want to win in fantasy, especially in something like best ball uh, or a format like that where you're not necessarily going to be able to tinker with your roster in season. But yeah, Correct. Miles Boykin, Justice Hill, Deion Kane, Trey Quinn, Damian Harris, like all these guys who were getting hyped in the preseason. It's okay to go after a couple of those guys in any given draft. But when you start to stack them up, if they all bust, like a lot of them did this year, then you're really going to be behind the eight ball. Now in a seasonal league, my other big takeaway here is that I actually don't have that many teams that were straight up bad this season. Because if you grind that waiver wire, if you actively try to make trades to improve your team, it's not that hard to make sure that you end up in, say, the top half of your league. And typically in a 12-teamer, you're going to see four to six teams make the playoffs. So if you really work each and every week to grind that waiver wire to make sure that you're putting forth your best lineup each week. I think that's the other big takeaway for me here is that you don't have to have bad teams if you try hard. You know what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so much of what we thought on draft day is different than even week two or week five or week eight. And there will always be talent. And it's very easy even after, like, say you had an 0-3 start, it's really easy just to throw in the towel and be like, well, screw it, you know, waivers take a long time, I'm not going to do it, blah, 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 blah. But the truth is that those who work the hardest generally end up winning. And I think if you really want to be good at fantasy sports, whether it's baseball or football, you kind of have to make a deal with yourself at the beginning of the year and just be like, I'm going to grind it all year long no matter what. I'm going to put in my, my A game for effort. And in general, you will be able to outwork people because the majority of people, once adversity hits, will, will check out in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into our Week 13 recap. And we're going to zoom through this because we spent a while there in the intro. Uh, who was your boom of the week? The fantasy starter who made the biggest or most unexpected positive impact on your teams? So I have one of each for seasonal and then DFS. And my seasonal guy would be James Washington, who was only kind of a start because of desperation um, in a lot of spots, uh, a couple of spots where I had Juju out and 
thin wide receiver cores. And it's like, well, screw it. Let's, you know, try James Washington. He ended up smashing. So that was, that was pretty lucky. And I'm happy that happened. And then I'd say in daily fantasy, uh, a guy who I really wasn't considering all that much until uh, our sharp friend, Derek Cardi started tweeting some stuff about him and kind of got me on him was Alshon Jeffrey, who mm-hmm. I think just destroyed the world in air yards. And I basically had him in every lineup that I played this week. And uh, that was really good for my bankroll. Yeah, it turns out the Eagles needed a legit receiver in that core there. Uh, but I mean, even still, they couldn't be the Dolphins. It's unbelievable. So that brings me to my boom of the week, Devontae Parker. I tweeted this out uh, before the game started on Sunday morning saying, look, this is my biggest matchup of the season. And I'm starting Devontae Parker, Dallas Goddard and LaShawn McCoy. And can you <laughs> believe good. that? Like they all worked out, but Parker was out of his mind. 10 catches or 10 targets, seven catches, 159 yards, two scores. This is awesome. I can't wait to see what he does down the stretch because the schedule easy, looks easy real schedule. tasty. Yeah, can't wait. Yeah, and I think and I think double digit targets in each of the last four games ever since Preston Williams went out. Yep, and I had another similar play, kind of to your James Washington one, where I was pretty desperate. I needed a wide receiver in a real deep format where I start six every week. I plugged in Zach Pascal, ten targets of his own, seven catches, hundred nine yards, no touchdowns, but. It was good to see him bounce back after he really, really burned me for a goose egg the week before. And now that Chester Rogers is reportedly out for the rest of the year in Indianapolis, it does seem like Pascal might be able to maintain some value going forward. You know, Eric Ebron is also out. T.Y. Hilton can't seem to stay healthy. The target should continue to be there for Pascal. So I'm excited to see if he can maintain value going forward as well. Sammy, which week 13 benching or DFS fade do you regret the most? And what do you what did you miss? Because for me, it was James Washington, your dude who went four for four for 111 and a score. I don't know. I don't like to invest in wide receivers like that with shaky to bad quarterbacks. And that's why I didn't plug him in and it burned me. I, I could have used those points. I have a couple of bad starts that I made. In terms of like fades, I'd say the only one that I really regret is not having more... Higby in tournaments uh, in DFS. I had him as a cash game lock, but I thought his ownership would be so significant that it would be worth pivoting. And I pivoted to some good guys. I pivoted to some Doyle. I was huge on Darren Waller this week. Uh, he had 100 yards, so he hit the bonus. But uh, I mean, I, I like had this great Ram stack uh, that did not include Higby. You know, it included Bob Woods and Cooper Cup, and it didn't have Higby because I thought it was just like a sharp fade, and uh, it turns out it wasn't. Yeah, I had the opposite problem. I had Higby everywhere and no Robert Woods, so shame on me as well. Uh, One other guy who stands out to me in this regard is Kenny Galladay. Same sort of story with James Washington and Duck Hodges. I just didn't want to plug Galladay into my lineup with this third-string QB who I had never heard of, and sure enough, Galladay goes off five targets, four catches, 158 yards, and a score. What do you think these Lions receivers are going to do in these final few weeks. Do you think they're trustable, Galladay and Marvin Jones? Um, not nearly as trustable uh, if if as if I could be sure that the opposing team would just not guard them uh, <laughs> like they didn't on that long Galladay touchdown. I mean, I mean, Blau definitely looked all right. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm like some like great film guy, but he looked passable. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is, is that you have Kenny Galladay, uh, you're likely just not able to sit him. Um, so that's fine. And Marvin Jones, I think was always kind of a wide receiver three ish guy. So, you know, it'll depend on the matchups, but I don't know that it changes that much in terms of like your practical application for, for playing them. 
Who were your busts of week 13, the players who made the biggest or most unexpected negative impact on your rosters? Oh, boy. Well, uh, this should not have been unexpected. Uh, and I know one of these is the same for you. I was heavily exposed to Nick Foles this week. Guilty. And that was, oh, dude, just a stone disaster. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm legit not watching the games. I'm like traveling uh, in a car with my wife and I'm getting texts. But I'm trying not to look at the text. You know, my wife's pregnant. I'm trying to be a responsible human being. And so I, like, give her the phone, and I'm like, here, read my text. And it's, like, Davis Maddox saying, oh, no, Foles has been benched, and I'm just, like, ready to cry. I'm ready to drive my car off the road. I just – I thought he would smash. I, th- I thought that going in, Tampa Bay is really that team that's great to play against because, A, they have a really awful, awful, awful pass defense, but then, B, they have a good enough offense to – continue to exchange blows and continue to make you uh, grind out yards and throw the ball. And so they're just a, a perfect team to have that against. I was big on Foles. I played him uh, in a pretty expensive GPP, him and Shark, and I played him in my most important seasonal 2QB league, and it was just a, a stone disaster. You know, just just bad job me. And then I'd say the one in DFS – I was really big on Jonathan Williams this week. He got 29 touches the week before. He was used as like, you know, a really, really big like bell cow type back. I don't know what happened. I didn't watch the game, but he got like nine touches and then got benched. And uh, that was it. I think he ended up with 25 yards and uh, that was not good for me. Yeah, it seems like Jordan Wilkins finally got healthy and the coaching staff decided that because they weren't doing all that well in that game that... Wilkins needed to kind of retake that role as the primary backup behind Marlon Mack. And now that Marlon Mack is reportedly targeting a week 14 return, I don't know if that's a backfield we need to concern ourselves with too much outside of DFS. Uh, You know, if Mack is ruled out again, then we have to do this dance between the three options there. But if Wilkins and Williams and Naheem Hines are all active, I don't really want to be messing with that in the first place, especially because they're not a really up-tempo team. I'd rather look elsewhere for my running backs. The Foles thing was crazy, man. Like, I, I'm with you. I expected that to be a, a big-time shootout. I made the over in that game one of my best bets. And you and I were talking before the show. Like, this was one of my worst picks against the spread weeks uh, all season. I, I was on a bunch of what seemed like obvious lines. And most of them blew up in my face, whether it was picking Cleveland, picking Philly. It, it was just a really, really rough week. And so, yeah, I, I got to echo the sentiment there with Foles. I expected big things. I, I don't know, like, even the other side of that matchup didn't turn out that well. Like, Jameis, despite all the points they scored, did not have a good game. What a disappointment. Oh, that... and, and, and imagine having Ronald Jones, which I did have. I played him in a big in my in my Ram stack, which uh, which blew that up. And uh, that other game also, where I also had Nick Foles in my most important league, I scored, like, my least points of the season. It was just a complete disaster. Uh, Peyton Barber just cucked him for, like, all the touchdowns and all the carries. And it's like, wait, what happened? Like, Ronald Jones was doing good. Everything was great. Like, things were lit. I, I just, it was just complete tilt. Yeah. One other bust of the week for me, just the, the entire New York Jets team. Just fire Adam Gase and the Jets into the sun. I think I'm done with them. Uh, that's that's probably a really good choice. What else stood out to you in week 13? Anything else? Uh, mostly just that teams that I was holding out hope were kind of decent are actually bad. Like, <laughs> the Eagles are just plain bad. I That was a team that... I think I bet them like plus 1500 at the beginning of the year to have the best record in the NFC disaster. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys, I think I got them at plus 2700 to, to have the best record in the NFL stone disaster. 
losing a playoff game at home to the Bills, who, like, the Bills are decent, but they should not be coming into your house and beating you as a 6.5 point home favorite. Completely bad. Carolina, I mean, Kyle Allen, we talked about he's been serviceable in fantasy, but he's really starting to show chinks in his armor. And some of these teams that I thought were halfway decent, I think are just like, okay, you're you're actually bad and I need to realize it. One of the things that caught my eye is I think that it's officially high gear for Devin Singletary season going forward. Mm. Frank Gore hit that milestone earlier this season, passing Barry Sanders on the all-time rushing yards list. And with that out of the way, the Bills... I think are now free to start feeding Singletary like a true workhorse. His 78% snap share in week 13 was the highest of the season. And I'm kind of excited to see what he can do down the stretch, because as we know, rushing quarterbacks like Josh Allen tend to open things up for running backs like Devin Singletary. And if Frank Gore really is going to be phased out slowly as the season goes on here, Singletary could be, I hate to use the term league winner, but he could be one of those types of players in these final few weeks. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the reality is every year, Championships are going to be decided by the best players in weeks 14 through 16, not the best players of the season. And those things are often different players. We're going to get into the week 14 waiver strategy in just a sec. But first, let's take a break for the sponsor of the show, Fantasy Draft, the only rake-free daily fantasy site in the business. They're running the largest rake-free contests out there each and every week. And all told, Fantasy Draft is paying out millions of dollars in prizes over the course of the season. All of those winnings are rake-free. That's right. Fantasy Draft is the only daily fantasy site with no management fees taken out of the prize pools. And this isn't just a limited promotion. While other DFS sites can continue to raise rakes, squeeze prize pools, make it harder for players like you to win, Fantasy Draft's contests remain rake-free. Sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with promo code 444, and you'll get a free 7-day trial on your first $1,000 of rake-free entry fees. That's FantasyDraft.com with promo code 444, the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. Don't miss your shot at millions of dollars in prizes this season. Start playing rake-free at FantasyDraft.com today. All right, Sammy, let's talk Week 14 waivers. And as usual, we're going to try to stick to players who are low-owned in Yahoo leagues, under 50% ownership. If you want to go off the board, bend the rules, that's okay, because... As you just stated, the playoffs are kind of a different beast than the regular season. We're not really looking rest of season all the time. Sometimes it's just this week. One matchup can make or break an entire playoff run. Let's start at running back. Who stands out to you? <laughs> this is, you know, really a, a terrible thing to say. Darwin Thompson. And and the reason is because Kansas City doesn't really seem to want to use LaShawn McCoy as a full-time back. I think they understand he's a little older, they, he has some limitations, etc. Damian Williams may or may not be back soon. I'm not sure when he's going to be back. Uh, we saw Daryl Williams leave with an injury in this game, and Darwin Thompson picked up a lot of work. And the truth is that running back Casey will always be really valuable. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of fab on him, but I think he's worth a lottery ticket. So I'm into him. Um, I'll, I'll be fully honest with you, Greg. I, I have no idea of ownership. I don't even know where to find it. So I don't know how owned uh, like a player like Geis is, but Geis had a really nice game this week. He's getting more and more work as the week goes on. The weeks go on. You don't love Washington's offense, but he's balling out right now. And I, and I think he's worth a guy that could potentially be a flex play moving forward. Yeah, Geis is above 50%, but if he's out there, I think him and Benny Snell and LaShawn McCoy are probably the three guys you could look for first 
off the waiver wire at running back. If any of those three guys is available, you're probably going after them ahead of Darwin Thompson. And the reason we're bringing up this Kansas City backfield is because Daryl Williams suffered a leg or ankle injury, depending upon, you know, what reports you're looking at in the second half against Oakland in week 13. Darwin Thompson came in after that, posted 11 carries, 44 yards, one touchdown on the ground. No work in the passing game for Thompson, but it's hard to tell if that was because Kansas City was cruising to victory or if they prefer to use their other backs as pass catchers. I have a feeling that if Darwin Thompson is you know, a, a primary running back alongside McCoy in Week 14, that Thompson will probably see a few more targets in the passing game. Like you said, Damian Williams is still looming, but I do think Thompson has to be a priority off waivers this week, especially in deeper formats. Uh, I mentioned Snell, a couple other guys to throw out there. Raheem Mostert is at 13% ownership. Patrick Laird is at 1% ownership. And after the uh, the Twitter debacle of Patrick Laird two <laughs> weeks ago, uh, he actually looked a little bit better in week 13, scored a touchdown, had a couple nice runs. He's still not a special player by any means, but if he's the primary back in any offense, he probably deserves some consideration. So what do you think about Mostert? What do you think about Laird? Yeah, I, Mostert obviously looked great, and he was getting a lot more work than Tevin Coleman, who looked washed for the most part. I mean, since it, Coleman had that one good game, like, I don't know, five, six weeks ago, and since then, he just hasn't been able to get anything going. And we've seen guys like, you know, Breida and Jeff Wilson Jr. and Mostert really make much more explosive plays than him. And Mostert looked really good in this one. So I, I, I certainly think he's worth a pickup. And a couple of other guys I would throw out there, People have said this before, but I think that this is about the time that you want to start looking ahead for potential backups in case of injuries. Yep. And guys like guys like Madison are going to be widely owned already, but Tony Pollard, uh, Ryquil Armstead, guys like that, I think are worth. If you just have like some scrub wide receiver five, you don't need him anymore. Um, you're never going to play him. It doesn't matter. Like who cares if he gets five catches for forty yards some week? Like nobody cares. Get a guy who, if there's some injury, would cost everybody's fab. Somebody would blow 100% on their, of their fab if, you know, Leonard Fournette got hurt or Zeke got hurt. Start looking for those guys and start filling out the back end of your rosters with them instead of like fifth string kind of scrubby guys. Right. And that's the argument against going after a player like Patrick Laird because we know Laird isn't very good. Whereas if you end up owning Alexander Madison and Dalvin Cook gets hurt, you have an RB1. Same thing with Tony Pollard and Zeke Elliott. You're actually reading my mind here, Sammy. I was going to ask you to rank some of these handcuffs. Maybe give me your top three. And we've mentioned Madison, Pollard, Ryquel Armstead, Rashad Penny. There are also some guys who have more standalone value already, like Kareem Hunt, Latavius Murray, Jamal Williams. Who would you say is your top three from that group if you're just speculating for guys who you think would be the best if the starter ahead of them got injured? Yeah, Madison, easily number one. I think Pollard, probably number two just because these are teams that that really use their running backs a lot, both in the passing game and the rushing game, near the goal line, all that stuff. And then, gosh, number three probably would not be Ryquel Armstead. Can you you give me the list one more time? (laughs) Rashad Penny, Kareem Hunt, Latavius Murray, Jamal Williams. I guess Penny, I think he's pretty widely owned already. So in a lot of leagues, you can't go pick him up. But we're recording this before the Minnesota and Seattle game. And Seattle is like one Chris Carson fumble away from just like pulling the plug completely. So I think that Penny, like I'd rather have probably Kareem Hunt in a vacuum if both teams uh, guys got hurt. But I think Rashad Penny is just so far closer to actually getting a job even without an injury. 
And so he's a guy that I would be rostering like anywhere I could. Right. And I think the big takeaway is, is that even if some of these guys are already rostered, like you mentioned, Madison probably being owned in most formats, I think Pollard and Penny are probably the same after, you know, at least some of the flashes that they've shown to this point in the season. If you can't get those guys, go out and stash somebody else because we never know which guys, which running backs are actually going to get injured, right? If it just so happens that Tevin Coleman gets hurt again, then it's Raheem Mostert who's the league winner out of nowhere, right? It could be right. any of these guys. So it doesn't really matter who you speculate on exactly, just as long as you're speculating because that's where you're going to find the potential value in these final few weeks. Let's move on to wide receiver. And this is kind of a loaded section of the podcast because as we just mentioned we don't really need those wide receiver three types anymore because there are no more bye weeks all we're really caring about is putting our best players on the field the guys who are going to get the most targets each and every week you're probably not going to get that from a waiver wire ad in week 14 but who stands out to you sammy at the wide receiver position this week you know why why receivers really uh, i think exceptionally tough and i definitely play in some deeper leagues so that the the wire is not that great, you know, but, but you mentioned Pascal and I think he was, I don't know what his ownership is off the, off 17%. the top of my head. Yeah. I, I think he would be the top guy. It, it just like you said, they are bereft of a number one receiver. And obviously the Colts number one receiver isn't going to get quite the volume as some other teams, but I think he's fantastic. I think Alan Lazard is a guy that you don't ever feel comfortable starting because he has, uh, just a lot of problems getting a lot of targets, but we saw him get open deep a couple of times and his schedule coming up is actually pretty nice. He gets Washington next, next week. He gets Minnesota, who's actually been pretty sketch against the pass in Minnesota in week 16. And we don't often think about it, but weather tends to end up always being really, really important uh, in the playoff weeks. And having guys that play in domes and out of the outdoor is always a really nice thing when it comes down to it. Yeah, this is my first year living outside of California. I'm in a proper winter right now. We had a, a wintry mix, as the weatherman called it this week. And so uh, I'm going to blame that on my poor performance uh, making picks <laughs> in week 13. But yeah, it, it has way more impact on the actual fantasy football players than it does on we fantasy football analysts. Uh, I want to compare Alan Lazard to Jacoby Myers. Lazard is at 5% ownership. Myers is at 1%. But like you said, Lazard's targets aren't really there. He only had three in week 13. He caught all three of them, 103 yards and a touchdown. Myers got seven targets in week 13. Despite the returns of Mohamed Sanu and Philip Dorsett, the Patriots have Kansas City and Cincinnati on tech with their next two matchups. If you're looking at those two players head-to-head, do you have a preference one way or the other? Yeah, it actually might be Myers there. Just because you want to kind of chase the targets. And Sanu has just, besides the one game that he had out there, he wasn't doing that great. I haven't looked at snap rates, but it looked like Philip Dorsett was uh, was kind of taking a backseat to like guys like Myers and, and Nikhil Harry. And it's always tough knowing exactly how the Patriots are going to deploy guys, even on a week-to-week basis. Even though it's not a good wide receiver core, uh, it's very deep. You know, there's like four guys kind of battling for two spots with New England. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if a guy's getting these kind of targets with New England, uh, I think it's it's you just chase the volume. Speaking of chasing volume, I'm going to give you another head-to-head here. Darius Slayton, 27% ownership, targets over the past three weeks, 14, 7, and 9, versus Anthony Miller at 14% ownership, and his targets over the past three weeks, 11, 9, 13. Do you want anything to do with either of these guys, and which one do you prefer? Yeah, I think I like Slayton better, and it feels weird to say, but 
Dude, uh, I, I know that Miller had a great game uh, on Thanksgiving, and, and I tend to like Miller a good deal, but I want the guy on the team that can actually throw the ball kind of well. And even though Daniel Jones turns the ball over a lot, he throws it pretty well also. Um, he's made pretty good fantasy producers out of his receivers. So uh, I think I'll just go with the better quarterback, which sounds weird to say, but uh, I'm I'm not on Team Trubisky. Yeah, I'm not a Trubisky guy either, but I'm not a Daniel Jones guy. So I, I think that that's kind of a wash in my mind. And you look at the circumstances that are propping up Miller over the past couple weeks, all the tight end injuries they've had, the loss of Taylor Gabriel this past week, and maybe Gabriel comes back in week 14. I haven't checked on his status in a little bit, but if those pass catchers for Chicago continue to miss time, I think I want Miller just because that target share feels a little bit more locked in. Like after Allen Robinson, it's basically him and Tariq Cohen at this point. And as bad as Trubisky is, if the volume is going to be there along these lines, you know, 11 targets, 9 targets, 13 targets, I think I'm okay with Anthony Miller. Now, with all that said, we're butting up against that problem we talked about earlier where if we're in week 13 and we don't have three receivers or four receivers who are better than Anthony Miller, we're probably not in the playoffs in the first place, right? That is correct. And I'd also be remiss if I didn't say that if I could be assured that Anthony Miller would line up on the right side of the formation the entire time, <laughs> I would uh, I would like him a lot more. <laughs> and that's a joke for the people who might not be in the know that uh, Mitchell Trubisky cannot throw to his left. That, that has uh, been well documented. Uh, a few more names I want to throw out here. Albert Wilson of the Dolphins, maybe Alan Hearns. Both these guys are 1% ownership, but Wilson is the one who interests me the most because over the past two games, he's averaging seven opportunities per game, and that's targets plus carries. Only 7.8 points per game in half-point PPR scoring in that two-game span, but he gets to face the Jets, the Giants, and the Bengals in the fantasy playoffs, and he's a very good athlete. 86th percentile 40 times, 67th percentile speed score, and a 73rd percentile burst score according to playerprofiler.com. Wilson only needs to break away on maybe one play to come up big in the fantasy playoffs, which I don't think is too big of an ask considering the shaky defenses that he's going to be facing. And I feel like Wilson's opportunities are going to be locked in now that Preston Williams and Jakeem Grant are lost for the season. He's another guy I'm, I'm a little more interested in in terms of a deep flyer who might actually pan out over these final few weeks. Yeah, I mean, Wilson is pure and utter desperation. Um, sure. Because you're absolutely right. He is a good athlete. He can break off big games. I remember it was like a year or two, our buddy Vlad Sedler uh, touted Wilson and he smashed for like two long touchdowns and it was just like the apex. Um, you know, he hasn't crossed 33 receiving yards in a game all season. But of course, we're not playing uh, backwards. We're playing forwards. And those matchups are tasty. Uh, if you have especially Devontae Parker, Ryan Fitzpatrick, you're pretty pumped on that schedule. Wilson would obviously be be really, really shaky to actually start. But the reality is you don't always handcuff running backs either. Like you can handcuff receivers. Yes. And if anything happened to Devontae Parker, I mean, Wilson would immediately become a guy that you'd be very interested in starting. So I think he does have a little bit of upside in that regard as well. Yeah, or maybe he's just the type of player who you plug into a DFS lineup because you need to save some salary at your third wide receiver spot. That's another possibility with players like this. Now, for sure. once again, you're reading my mind. I wanted to ask you more about this idea of handcuffing or playing towards upside with the wide receiver position. Nicole Hardman at 29% ownership, Andy Isabella at 1% ownership. I think these guys might get a little bit more run down the stretch. Like if Kansas City locks up their playoff seeding or, or about so like maybe they give Tyree kill a little bit more rest, give Hardman more reps. And for Isabella in Arizona, if 
a team is out of the playoff race like the Cardinals, I think they are incentivized to see what they have in their younger players like Andy Isabella. So I think this type of player, these guys who could qualify for late season upside also need to be under consideration. Maybe not as guys you want to spend a lot of fab on or a high priority on, but again, players that you might consider in tournament lineups and DFS, but also guys who, if you have the bench space and no other better options to go after, like in a really deep format, maybe these are the types of players that you speculate on, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was pretty disappointed to see, I haven't looked up his snap rates, but Andy Isabella had played like somewhere around 30% of the snaps for the last three or four weeks uh, before like basically playing one snap a game. And I just saw in this uh, last game against the Rams, he had one target in a game that they lost 34 to seven and had to, you know, get back and throw a lot. So that was that was disappointing from that perspective, because I agree that Isabella is exactly the kind of guy that I would want to use as a high upside flyer. If he's all of a sudden went from, you know, 25, 30 percent of snaps to, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of slot work and have you around 70 percent. That's a guy who can make massive, massive plays. We saw it in college. We've seen some flashes of it this year. We like Kyler Murray. I mean, all of those things are really good. So he is a guy that, that especially that archetype that I'd be more interested in rostering and taking a shot on than like a low, kind of just a low upside kind of wide receiver five guy. Here are the snap shares for Isabella over the past few weeks. Week 10, 37%. Week 11, 29%. They were on buy in week 12. And then in week 13, 31%. So he's been pretty steady around 30%. Hopefully yeah. that ramps up. The problem is, you look at week 13, who else was playing? Pharaoh Cooper got almost 60% of the snaps, and Demir Bird came back from not playing at all to getting 38%. Christian Kirk and Larry Fitzgerald are the only really locked-in guys there, and I think that they are going to have to see what they have in Isabella down the stretch. So he's a guy I'm going to be watching, maybe not picking up with a ton of confidence. But let's move on to quarterback, and we do have a potential big-time pickup for two quarterback and super flex leagues, Gardner Minshew. We mentioned the Nick Foles debacle Minshew is already 8% owned in Yahoo League, so he's not necessarily going to be out there in every two-quarterback format. But if he's there, he's probably the top waiver ad this week, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, the, the reality is that he was passable when he was playing. And he does have legitimate options. You know, I mean, they're throwing a ball a ton to Leonard Fournette, but I think DJ Shark is good. DD is a good slot receiver. Conley is halfway decent. I mean, that's a team that... I am interested in, and you see some matchups. We talked about playoff scheduling in week 15 and 16. They're at Oakland and at Atlanta in a dome, both defenses that are really bad, you know, especially that dome date. I like a lot. So if Minchu is going to be the guy, I mean, we can just run it back and uh, maybe he can be everything we were hoping Nick Foles would be. A few other quarterbacks you can look for if you're truly desperate, Drew Locke, Devlin Hodges, Taysom Hill, David Blau, Tyrod Taylor, there were some rumblings that Phillip Rivers might get benched uh, if he didn't perform well in that game. So I I don't think that you need to go out and add these guys. I have a feeling that if you don't have two good quarterbacks at this point in the season, you're probably not too live in your Superflex League playoffs. But those are some names you can look at. Let's talk about one quarterback streaming considerations. I'm just going to list a bunch of guys. You tell me who you like, Sammy. We got Ryan Tannehill at Oakland, 39%. Jacoby Brissett at Tampa Bay, 38%. Daniel Jones at Philly, 26%. Let's stop there for now. Those are kind of the higher ownership guys that might be streamable. Uh, Do you like any of those guys more than the others? I do. I I probably like Tannehill the most. Tannehill's actually shown like a pretty nice rushing floor. Uh, He's been been like really good, actually. And I just think Oakland is that team. I, I believe, I don't know what they are after this week, but I think going into the week, they were dead last in the NFL in pressure rate. 
And I think that's one thing that I really like to look at when I'm looking at defensive matchups. It's not like how many fantasy points have you given up? It's how good are you at, at disrupting the quarterback? And they are awful at it. So I, I really love that matchup for Tannehill. And then Daniel Jones would probably be my number two. I like that matchup a lot. And while Jones, like I said, has shown a huge propensity to turn the ball over, um, he goes down the field and and he has actually a rushing floor that that I think is a little understated. Um, you know, he's he's yeah. pretty good at rushing the ball, and he's had I think three games of over thirty fantasy points. He's pretty much a high beta player, but uh, but <laughs> but when he hits, um, he, he he's in. So and he turns into a high T player. Yeah, I think another player you could consider, you kind of poo-pooed him earlier, but Mitchell Trubisky is going to be against the Dallas Cowboys on Thursday Night Football. Only 19% owned. I don't love him. I'd probably go after some of these other guys a little bit lower. Uh, Kyle Allen at Atlanta, 19% ownership. Ryan Fitzpatrick at the Jets, 10% ownership. I think I prefer both Allen and Fitzpatrick to Trubisky. I assume that you're on the same page there, but would you take either of them over Daniel Jones or over Ryan Tannehill? Uh, probably not. not. Not Team Trubisky for me. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Uh, digging a little deeper, these guys are all under 10% ownership. Andy Dalton at Cleveland, Gardner Minshew versus the Chargers, and then you know the real dumpster dives, Drew Locke at Houston, Devlin Hodges at Arizona, David Blau at Minnesota. Which of those guys do you like the most? Uh, it would probably be Andy Dalton and Devlin Hodges. I, I think I... Dude, I'm a Steelers fan, so I have to just like uh, kind of precurse that with this, and I try not to get my bias in the way, but I, yeah, I like what I've seen out of, out of Hodges and it was not just like this week. I, you know, I was saying, man, like I think that Pittsburgh is just a way better team with Devlin Hodges out there than Mason Rudolph. And I was really happy to see them make the switch. I mean, we'll see what's going on with Juju Smith Schuster, but Pittsburgh has been doing this without their good players. No James Connor, Marquise Pouncey has been out like having your starting center. Who's the captain of your O line, not being out there is a big deal when it comes to actual football, you know, Juju, Connor, etc. I like him, and then I, I've always thought that Andy Dalton gets too much hate. Yeah. Um, I, I He's fine. Like, he's okay. I agree. I think that he got a bad deal there in Cincinnati, and I'm glad to see that he's back under center for them because he never should have been mentioned in the first place. He was not the problem for the Bengals, no. uh, so it's no. good to see him. I'm with you on Hodges. I think of the guys who are really scraping the bottom of the barrel, he's really intriguing this week because it's the perfect matchup. He's at Arizona. If you were looking to maybe stack Hodges with one of the receivers there in Pittsburgh uh, in DFS, who's your preferred go-to guy? And let's assume that Juju Smith-Schuster isn't playing. Yeah, it, definitely James Washington. And I hate to just chase points, but they've certainly uh, created the duck connection. You know, they're going out yeah. hunting, et cetera, et cetera. But I, the other thing is I think that James Washington was a guy that a lot of people liked coming out of school. A big time, big play down the field, dude. And he's he's almost certainly not going to be that guy who gets like eight, nine targets a game. But if you're looking for tournaments, guys who can make big plays down the field, guys who can you know score 10 points in one play, et cetera. I think that's James Washington. I think he has, aside from Devlin Hodges, started to show us a lot more in the last couple of weeks, things that we thought he was capable of coming out of school. Let's transition to tight end. And I want to start off with Pittsburgh's primary guy there, Vance McDonald. The Arizona Cardinals have been well documented as being a, a team to target with your tight ends, but McDonald has kind of disappeared since Hodges took order, over a quarterback. Do you have any interest in McDonald this week, or would you rather dig a little deeper for a tight end addition if you need one? 
Yeah, I would probably dig elsewhere. And I know, like, the, you know, the flow chart, just play tight ends against Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I get it, and I've taken advantage of it. But the truth is, the guy needs to get the ball for him to score. That's just a, an immutable fact. And McDonald's just not getting the ball. It's just not happening. And could it, like, happen out of nowhere? Sure. But, you know, four targets, 22 yards over the last two games – uh, and these were good matchups too, like Cincinnati yeah. and Cleveland. I just, I just can't get on board with a guy I'm not confident will get like at least five targets, and and I don't feel that way about Vance right now. So let's talk about a couple other guys who are relatively high owned in Yahoo formats: Jason Witten, fifty percent; Darren Fells, thirty eight percent; Noah Fant, thirty four percent; and he who shall not be named, OJ Howard, thirty two percent. Of those guys, which ones would you prefer, or would you rather go with McDonald over all of them? Uh, I'd rather go with anybody uh, ahead of O.J. Howard, so he's last. Uh, and then Vance McDonald, he's second last. Um, <laughs> I actually think it's Noah Fant. And I just got done talking about targets. Uh, Fant, you know, he's he's been down to eight targets over the last two weeks combined. But I still like what I'm seeing out of him from a percentage perspective. Uh, he has been the second most targeted Bronco uh, besides Sutton, uh, since Emmanuel Sanders left. And I just think there's upside for him in games where they have to throw a little more. Like in this, in this last week, I think Locke only had to throw it 28 times. They were ahead most of the game. But the next couple games at Houston, at KC, I think line up for Denver to generally be behind a lot more. And I don't think much of the athleticism of those teams' safeties and linebackers so I think that Fant could actually have a little mini breakout in terms of targets in the next couple of weeks. And I like his athleticism a lot. So he's the guy I kind of think is a de facto number two wide receiver uh, playing tight end for the Broncos. Yeah, I really like that you laid out the matchups projecting forward because in recent weeks he hasn't been that great. But like you said, the volume might be a little bit higher in these upcoming weeks. With that said, I think I would still probably prefer Witten if only because his target share feels a little bit more locked in. And I might also prefer Fells, if only because he just seems to be a touchdown magnet for Deshaun Watson in the red zone. But you're splitting hairs with all these guys. It really is like playing touchdown bingo. And we're probably burying the lead with these tight ends because I think the real prizes are even lower in ownership. The first would be Mike Gusecki at 19% on Yahoo. He's got touchdowns in two straight games, and his targets over the past five games are 6, 6, 6, 7, and 7. The other guy is Tyler Higby at 11%. You mentioned him earlier as a guy who blew up uh, in DFS in Week 13. If Gerald Everett continues to miss time for the Rams, Higby's going to continue to be uh, a really big piece of that offense in Los Angeles. Between Gusecki and Higby, do you have a preference? And do you agree that these guys are probably ahead of all the players we've mentioned to this point? Yeah, I do. And and I think uh, Higby specifically would kind of be my number one guy uh, if he's available. I know in a lot of leagues he got picked up uh, before this week and, you know, the news that Everett would be out. He's obviously really dependent on if Everett plays or not, but we clearly saw the upside and we saw Everett be a, a legitimate starter as well yeah. uh, when he was healthy and getting all the snaps. So you like to like have a position that's doing well, no matter who's in there. And we've seen that with the Rams tight end. Uh, they, they've just used the tight end a lot more this year as they've used their running backs a lot less and less in the passing game. So uh, Higby would be my first ad, and uh, I'd play him with confidence if uh, Everett didn't play. 
A few more tight ends to throw out for the real deep leaguers. Caden Smith is at 1% ownership his last two games. Mm. He's got six targets for five catches, 17 yards, and a touchdown, and then eight targets for six catches and 70 yards, no score. The big question is if and when Evan Ingram is going to return for the Giants. Um, After Caden Smith, you could also look at Jaden Graham, 0% ownership. In Week 13, he had four targets, four catches, 41 yards, and a score. Austin Hooper is expected to return to practice this week, and he's probably going to push Jaden Graham out, but that might not be for another week. A lot of times, guys like Cooper will return to practice for a week, still be inactive, and then it'll be the following week that he'll get back on the field. So if Hooper is ruled out again, I think Jaden Graham is another one you can look at. Uh, Last guy I'll throw out, Ian Thomas, if only because Greg Olson was concussed in Week 13. We don't know what his status is going to be in Week 14. Uh, Do any of those three stand out to you as a player you're interested in? I generally think you can probably do better than all three of these guys. I I do too. Uh, I think Ian Thomas probably the most um, you know, only because the other two seem like more of short term deals, hmm. but you never know with a guy like Greg Olson, how severe that concussion is going to be. I mean, it could be something where it's like, Oh yeah, like I'm 52 years old. I'm just going to sit it out the rest of the season. And Ian Thomas, I mean, Carolina is a team that has a propensity to use their tight end a decent amount. Olson's had a really fine mid-level tight end season. And I don't see that much of a reason why if he played, that Ian Thomas couldn't come in a uh, little younger, a little more athletic, not as uh, not as uh, shifty and wise. But I think Ian Thomas could come in and do a fine Greg Olson impression if he played. Let's quickly run through some defensive streamers who are out there. I'll start with the guys who are. I'll start with the teams that are a little higher owned. Green Bay is against the Redskins this week at 47% ownership. Dallas is at Chicago and Trubisky, 39% ownership. And Seattle is at the Rams against their shaky offensive line, 38% ownership. Green Bay is the clear team to target here, I think, because of the opponent. But if the Packers are gone and you're looking at Dallas versus Seattle, which of those two teams do you prefer in Week 14? Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, Green Bay would be the best of those. I would take Dallas number two, again, just because uh, I think Trubisky is terrible. And uh, I haven't looked at weather reports, but this game is going to be in Chicago. And, uh, you know, you never know what's going to be going on out there. If you have, like, heavy wind, et cetera, it could just be, like, a complete a complete S show. So I do like Dallas. I think they've, dude, they've just underperformed a lot. I think they have really good players at all levels of their defense. You know, you got Byron Jones in the back. You have guys like Jalen Smith and Vander Esch, who's been a little hurt uh, in the middle. You have Demarcus Lawrence on the line. They should be a much better defense than they are. It's almost as if they have some coaching issues there or something. It, yeah. It's almost as if the sum of their parts don't like equal what they actually are. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting theory. <laughs> Let's look at some teams that are a little bit more likely available. Uh, Tennessee is at Oakland, 29%. Indianapolis is at Jameis and Tampa Bay, 27% ownership. Houston is at home against Denver, and Drew Locke held his own in Week 13, but that was a home game. This is a road game in a dome. I kind of like the Texans' defense here. And then the flip side of that matchup, Denver going up against Houston at 22% ownership. I don't really want to be starting a team against Deshaun Watson, but their offensive line has had their own set of struggles, and Watson can be a little frivolous with the ball. He makes some aggressive throws at times. Uh, Which of these teams stand out to you? Is it Tennessee, Indy, Houston, or Denver? Yeah, I think that you make a good case for Denver as like a low-priced contrarian tournament play in DFS, uh, just because the Texans do give up a lot of sacks. That's something they've done for the last several seasons and probably will continue to do. Um, I I probably do like the Texans the best um, at home, and I don't have a lot of Drew Locke takes, but I just think Denver is 
is a team that you can take advantage of. I don't think they have a very good offensive line. And I think the thing that you want to look the most at when you're looking at defenses is who's a, who's a favorite. And I haven't looked at the lines yet, but if I was going to guess, the Texans would be like, I don't know, eight or nine point favorites. Yeah, big favorites, most likely. Yeah. And so that's the situation you want to be in where the other team is down. They have to throw and you know they're going to throw. That's where fantasy points get created. You know, we tend to focus on, oh, how many points will they give up, like real life points? And that really doesn't affect DST scoring a whole lot. It's how many sacks and uh, turnovers can you get? And those happen when the other team is forced to throw the ball and you know they're going to throw the ball. So Texans would be my number one pick there. And then uh, I think Indy would be number two. I think Indy's got an underrated defense. And as much as Tampa should put points up, Jameis is like uh, just a stone lock for at least two turnovers every game and at least like one stupid sack. And, you know, I mean, he will give you the points even if he ends up scoring himself. One other deeper play I am mildly intrigued by, and I'm, I'm hoping I can do better than this, but I, I kind of like the Raiders at home against Tennessee. You mentioned earlier that the Raiders have had a lot of trouble getting to the quarterback, but on the flip side of that matchup, the Titans are getting sacked at like an amazing clip. I saw this tweet from uh, Football Perspective at FBG Chase on Twitter. Tennessee is taking a sack on 12.7% of all pass plays. That's the worst rate in the NFL since Art Shell and Aaron Brooks were with the 2006 Raiders at 13%. So this is a matchup that even though the Raiders typically aren't good at getting to the QB, maybe the matchup corrects that for them. And the Raiders are at home. They might be favored slightly in this matchup. I, I do think that the black hole is still a place where home field advantage exists to some extent which you can't say for most football stadiums but I kind of like the Raiders it's it's a little scary but I'd be intrigued by them if you know their price is low enough on DFS you know what I mean yeah I do I I think that we'll a lot of the time as we go through the season get to that place where like two things are in in conflict with each other like Oakland never sacks the quarterback uh but Tennessee just always gets sacked um (laughs) you know what I mean the the thing that I actually would would turn me off of it a little bit is just that Tennessee runs the ball so much. Derrick Henry, baby. Yeah, it, it is Derrick Henry season right now. And they will run the ball even when they're down. And so it just doesn't give the other team as many opportunities as you'd like to see. But I think that if you're desperate, like the thinking is sound. Yeah, I mean, you definitely picked the right way to poke a hole in my argument that that balloon is sufficiently deflated. It's even if Tennessee is giving up that many sacks, it doesn't matter if they're just running the ball 40 times. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But I am interested to see how that specific matchup plays out, right? When Tannehill drops back to pass, how often are the Raiders going to get to him? Because this is an immovable force meets an unstoppable object, except, you know, more depressing. Uh, right. And, and that's the other part is is projecting game flow. Like if you think Oakland can get up in this game with their home field advantage, et cetera, then that's a situation where you tend to like them a lot more. So you have to kind of tell yourself a story and say, okay, if the story goes this way, this could happen. And that's something where, you know, I'm not huge on like running back and DST correlations, but if you want to play Oakland's defense and Josh Jacobs and say, okay, I think Oakland's going to be up in this game, a lot of rush attempts and their defense is going to force Tennessee to throw when they don't want to. That's kind of the story you want to put it all together. Yeah, and I would feel better about trying to tell that story if the Tennessee defense wasn't quite as solid as it was and Derek Carr wasn't quite as bad as he is. I think that all things considered, this matchup is one that I think plays out 
in a way where both these teams are going to be probably close most of the game, both able to run the ball. And I'm talking myself out of it more and more. So let's just move on. Uh, <laughs> let's quickly run through some droppable players. And we're, we're going pretty long here. I'm just going to throw out a name and you tell me whether or not you think that they're droppable. Tevin Coleman. Sure. Drop. Duke Johnson. Drop. Carlos Hyde. Drop. Terry McLaurin. Drop. Ronald Jones. Oh, drop. I, I will personally be dropping him. Uh, I can assure you of that. <laughs> uh, Matt Breda. Hold. Chris Conley. Drop. Jalen Samuels. Drop. Jonathan Williams. I mean, he can't get off my teams quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> Marquise Brown. Uh, hold. Yeah. I mean, the, let's dig on Brown a little bit because... Two targets in week 13. I know it was against the Niners, but this has kind of been the MO with him where some weeks he blows up, some weeks he doesn't. He's the ultimate boom-bust guy, it seems. Yeah. I just don't know if I want to trust that type of player in my lineup during the playoffs. How do you justify holding a player like that who you know could potentially go two targets, one catch, five yards in any given game? Oh, yeah, it's, it's really tough. I mean, you hit the nail on the head that this guy is extremely boom-bust. Uh, just by the nature of a how Baltimore plays and then kind of his role, like he is not an intermediate pass catcher who's going to get eight targets. Like if he doesn't hit the big play, generally not worth it a lot. Um, I do like the matchups that he provides down the stretch. I love the home date with the New York Jets in week 15. The Cleveland Browns is OK um, as well. But I think it's really going to come down to can a team push Baltimore to get out of their run game even a little bit? That's that's really, really important. And I think the one thing that the Jets do provide is not necessarily being able to score to keep up, but I, I hate to talk about funnels a lot, but they are very good at rush defense and very bad at pass defense. And generally teams can take advantage of that. It's not just that that's the way it plays out. It's also when coaching staffs are game planning, they look at strengths and weaknesses and say, okay, I'm probably going to try to attack here. So, so I like that. And he's certainly not a guy that, that I feel like, oh yeah, he's a locked in starter moving forward because he's not. But anytime you're in a situation where you might need to increase your variance, say you're like a, a big underdog in your fantasy matchup and that guy who just gets a safe six, seven targets every week, you can take him or Marquise Brown, who's either boom or bust. Uh, I think you want that upside in certain situations. Yeah, and I think in week 15 is the perfect illustration of that. Not only is that a good matchup for a passing game, the Jets have a really good run defense. So that could be the situation where they have it trouble getting it going on the ground the Ravens do and therefore they give Marquise Brown a couple extra targets relative to what you might expect now week 14 is a different sort of situation the Ravens are at Buffalo who have a really good secondary are you going to be benching Marquise Brown in week 14 yeah I, I would not play him at Buffalo and the other part of that is you know I haven't looked at reports but I'm assuming in the uh in the in the northeast there it's not going to be pretty and for the most part when you have significant weather and especially wind, those deeper throws are just not going to happen as often or be as accurate. Let's wind down with just a few more projections for the fantasy playoffs here, Sammy. What are the biggest questions or unknowns for you going forward? You know, I, I think the important thing in the fantasy playoffs, the unknowns are really like, who is going to be the guy who ends up getting hurt and screwing everybody? And who is going to be, right? And who is going to be the guy who is on somebody's roster that ends up coming up and being huge. And so we touched on this earlier in terms of, you know, who are some of these backups that could potentially be huge if like a guy sprains his knee or, you know, gets a high ankle sprain at some point. 
I think those are the the biggest questions and we don't really have answers until they happen. Yeah, I have the same sort of thing listed in my notes here. We mentioned Andy Isabella earlier, maybe getting more targets because the Cardinals want to see what they have in him. I think along the same lines, you could look at Kelvin Harmon for Washington. Is he going to start to see more work? Maybe Steven Sims can join in that. Or can a player like Josh Gordon start to see more targets as he gets acclimated in Seattle? We know that it takes wide receivers a little bit of time to adjust to a new offense. Those are the types of questions that we're really not going to know the answers to. The other thing that I'm always wondering about is which teams are going to stay motivated, which ones are going to pack it in. Yeah. Are are you more likely to steer clear of teams that have that sort of nebulous situation, or do you try to exploit the unknown by using like select players from those you know potentially tanking teams? Yeah, I think in DFS you want to take advantage of that uncertainty. So I think that's a that's a big thing. And if you're wrong, I mean, screw it. Like, who cares if you get fiftieth percentile in a tournament? You're going for like top two percentile. Um, in fantasy and seasonal, I think you want to be a little more assured of where a team's motivations lie. And I think staying on top of that stuff is really, really big. Fortunately, it's not that often that a team has everything locked up in like week 15 and 16. A lot of times, even seeding some sort of home field, et cetera, even if they're locked into a playoff spot will still matter down the stretch. So um, I don't worry about it that much, but certainly if, uh, if a team has everything locked up and the coach is being cagey about how often how much guys will play, uh, that's a big warning sign. Let's close it down with this. Give me one bold prediction for the fantasy playoffs. Uh, the bold prediction is that tonight, Monday night, uh, Chris Carson fumbles again. Rashad Penny takes over and completely smashes in both week 15 at Carolina and week 16 at home against Arizona and wins somebody a fantasy championship. I love it. I'm going to say that Ryan Fitzpatrick is a top five quarterback in weeks 14 through 16 when he gets to face the Jets, the Giants, and the Bengals. Love it, uh, especially because he's on my barf team. Oh, how dare you? Uh, well, <laughs> Sammy, thanks a ton for coming on the show today. I know we went a little long. I appreciate you taking the time. Why don't you let folks know where they can find you on the interwebs and social media and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, on Twitter, at SammyReadFI. Um, my tweets will start getting really obnoxious come baseball season because it's like incessant baseball tweeting and you'll probably unfollow me, but that's all right. Um, you can read the read option out from behind the paywall this season on Roto Grinders. Uh, I hope you enjoy that. And then every Sunday night slash Monday morning, myself, Davis Maddock, and Nate Noling put out the Gilcast where we roast each other for our bad DFS lineups and decisions. That's on the Roto Grinders uh, podcast network. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. Please come by 444.com. Check out what we got going on there. If you don't have a subscription yet, now is the perfect time to get it. Get yourself set up for the fantasy playoffs. We have a ton of amazing tools. I mentioned some snap shares earlier. That stuff is already accessible on the site. I was looking at week 13 snap numbers earlier today. Uh, other great tools and rankings from John Paulson, things like that. Uh, otherwise, John and Anthony will be back later this week with a podcast of their own, and I will be back next week with another great guest to talk week 14 and week 15. Until then, thanks for listening to The Most Accurate Podcast. This simple prayer, I say without a sound.